Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Sydney today. It's such a pleasure to see you, and I think we are experiencing a few technical difficulties this morning. Is that correct? Okay, a few technical difficulties, which means uh, I don't even know. There's words that won't be seen and things that may not come through, but praise the Lord we have his word, that he's able to minister it to our hearts, and may we hear and obey him. So... Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 23, if you'll turn there, and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all, and despite uh, technical difficulties and obstacles and trials, and Lord, you are still faithful and good, and we can look to you with eyes of faith, knowing that you will accomplish your good purposes. Thank you that you accomplishing your work does not depend upon us that you are awesome and sovereign and mighty, glorious, and we rejoice in you. Lord, we thank you for the breath you've given us, for the health, for the life, for the future that you have with us uh, planned in heaven, that we will be with you forever. And we rejoice to come before you now to remember the price that Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world and that we have been redeemed through him and that he is the light of the world. He is the good shepherd. He is the Messiah and Savior that you promised from the beginning to send. And we rejoice and praise you for him and seek to honor and glorify him today in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you saw history being made? Where you saw something happen, you're like, oh, this is a big deal. The eyes of the world are looking at this thing and it could have been a tragedy you saw on TV, or a triumph, a natural phenomena of some sort. Uh, one of those, remember, you remember where you were moments when it happened, and I remember when Halley's Comet, uh, in the States we say Halley's Comet, uh, passed over in 1986. And I remember doing the maths and saying, you know, I don't want to get up in the middle of the night to see this comet fly by. I'll wait till next time, 75 years down the road. And uh, so, if I live to be 86, I, I will be looking for that. Um, and, and still be, hopefully, God willing, have the eyes, like the vision to actually see it. I kind of didn't think about that as a kid. Um, I've seen a handful of memorable sporting moments, like when uh, Michael Clark uh, got his double century against on against uh, India at the SCG in 2012, going on the next day to get his 329 not out. And with radio and television and the internet, it's like the world news now has been brought to our eyes and ears and at our fingertips in real time. But of all the events that we could have seen, the things that have stuck with you, there's nothing more uh, momentous uh, marvelous and infamous than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Messiah that God sent to save, that man, his creation, decided to murder and slaughter. It's uh, crazy. But God knew what was going to happen. He knew the sin that was in the hearts of men. And yet he sent a Savior filled with love, grace, and truth, and justice to accomplish that. So even the wickedness of men could not undo God's plans. It actually furthered it. So in Luke 23, 26 is where we'll begin. And just for a little background, Jesus had been arrested. He was condemned by envious Jews who brought him before Pontius Pilate. 
to give the sentence of death over him. And he resisted at first. He tried reasoning with them. He tried to evade responsibility by sending him to Herod and offered a compromise, all to no avail. The people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And he decided the only way to bring a peaceful resolution to this uprising was to sentence Jesus as they requested. So he released Barabbas to them, and he sent Jesus to be scourged and crucified. I just see in this the grace and redemptive power of God. The love of Jesus demonstrated that he knew what was awaiting him. It wasn't an unknown. He knew that he would be going to a cross, and he also knew that he would rise from the dead. And so it's in that power of the resurrection that we view this and rejoice in what he accomplished as his redeemed. Starting in Luke 23, 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. The harmony of the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus was scourged. That was a common preparation for any Roman execution. Uh, Romans were rarely crucified. It was reserved for the worst criminals, foreigners, and uh, perhaps Romans who had like been runaways from the military or something, some very severe punishment. And the physical trauma and the blood loss from scourging, it made executions more efficient and effective because the victim was already in a very weakened state. And it was common for those who were condemned after scourging to be led in a winding path towards the final execution site as they carried their cross. And this painful procession, it was an opportunity for them to broadcast the crime of the condemned and to further humiliate them, to let everyone know what was happening and why. And it attracted a lot of attention. The Gospel of John, it says that Jesus initially carried his cross, but at some point was physically unable to do so. And no one came forward. No one volunteered to take up that cross. But there was a foreigner, a man called Simon from Cyrene. That's a city located in North Africa, modern-day Libya. He didn't have a choice. It says they, they took him. They laid hands on him. They said, hey, hey, you, you come carry this cross. Simon, it says, he was coming from the country. He had animal or supplies. He looked a little different, like not from around here. And I'm sure he was an easy target where they said, you know, this guy isn't going to complain about having to bear a burden. He's not going to take us to court. We can intimidate him. Hey, you, grabbed him, carry this cross. And it's possible that Simon became a follower of Jesus Christ. His sons are mentioned by name in Mark 15, 21. I don't know if Simon knew Jesus, but Jesus knew him. Wouldn't that be something? To come from a foreign country, to have a condemned criminal passing in front of you, and you're thinking, oh, this is bad. You've now been selected out of the crowd to carry this cross, and you're talking to a man, you're, you're next to a person who knows you, who loves you, and it impacted him as he led this as he carried that cross to the place of execution. Continuing in verse 27, And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts that which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, 
and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? As I was studying through this passage, it just struck home so clearly that there's no way to convey in a few words. Even if I were to spend all day to try to describe the scene to you, I couldn't possibly do so. The sights, the sounds, the labored breathing of Jesus, the mockery of his jubilant adversaries, the, the shouts of the Romans who were saying who Jesus was, that he was the king of the Jews and, and what, that he was headed to crucifixion, or the wails of the women that followed. It said that many mourned him and lamented him. And what was happening to Jesus was most lamentable, that he's an innocent man. He's being brutally treated unjustly, one who showed love and compassion to all, now having been scourged, going to his death by wicked, envious men. And there's no greater injustice that's ever been done in the history of the world than sinful mankind rejecting their Savior, rejecting the God who created them, and the one sent to save them. It's like, you cannot give a simile or a metaphor or an illustration for this. This is the ultimate. Any illustration that I was to give, it would bring it down because this is the grandest injustice ever done. And the one who has been unjustly treated and beaten, he spoke words that I wouldn't have expected. He did not take solace in their tears. He did not... uh, feel emboldened to press on because they wept for him. But he tells them, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. These daughters of Jerusalem, they were children of a city that would face judgment at the hands of the Romans. Tribulation was coming for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And woe to those who had children and needed to provide for them during a siege while they were fleeing for their lives. And this statement, it's, it's multifaceted. It's not just speaking about this coming judgment uh, 40 years later about, but the tribulation in the end times. We read of it in Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16, where that same term is used. It says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains on a, and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. If the sinless Son of God was thus treated by those who claimed to follow God's law, what terrible judgment awaited them by God for their sin? And Jesus asked, For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Freshly cut green wood, it's usually left to dry for a period of time or put into a kiln so that it's suitable for burning. In the prime of his life, Jesus, uh, the, the vine, right? He's fruitful, green, growing. He was cut down, though a righteous man. How much more would God destroy those who condemned the innocent? From another point of view, Jesus, he's the vine, his followers the branches. If such a thing would happen to the master, what would happen to his servants? They could expect such treatment. And we know many Christians were crucified uh, in those days after Christ went to heaven. The message of the gospel was being rejected while Jesus was still alive. How much more after his passing, after he went into the heavens? And this weeping for Christ, it was really misguided pity. 
because they were better off for Jesus paying for their sins. Jesus laying down his life, it would be gain by faith in him. There's a couple of really cool quotes. Adam Clark, he said this, The sufferings of Christ are not a subject of sorrow to any man, but on the contrary, of eternal rejoicing to the whole of a lost world. Spurgeon, he wrote this quote, You need not weep over the crucifixion, but weep over your transgression. For your sins nailed the Redeemer to the accursed tree. To weep over a dying Savior is to lament the remedy. It were wiser to bewail the disease. When we read of Jesus' sufferings, there may be, there, there is guilt in us because we recognize our sin. We recognize that it's because of our sin that Jesus suffered. And so, there can be something in us that wants to suffer. Like, I want to feel the pain. Like, we could contribute to the payment, but we can't. Jesus did it all. He fulfilled it all. He accomplished it. And I think it's easy for us to be emotionally moved by a movie, by hearing a a tale of cruelty to humans or to, to animals. And, and it's something totally out of our control, yet, and we can't do anything to change it, yet we can be moved by it. We can be provoked. We can be angered by it. We can be upset. We can lose sleep over it. And at the same time, we can be callous and careless about our own sin. If there were no sinners, there would be no need for a Savior, right? Jesus came to save sinners. This was the price that was required to provide atonement for my sin, for your sin, for the sins of the world. It would be foolish for us to be moved with anger that the Jews killed the Messiah or that Pilate condemned him to death. To shed tears over the pains Jesus willingly submitted himself to, knowing the victory he would accomplish. Let's bewail our sin rather than a Savior who chose to suffer so we could be forgiven. You know, we can cry. It doesn't mean that we've changed. It doesn't mean that we've decided to repent and to turn from what's evil and do what's good instead. Repentance is a change of mind. It results into a changed life, a new direction that's in obedience to God. And if we're truly sorry that Jesus was sacrificed, we should refuse to do what required cleansing by his blood. If if we really care, if you really are moved by what Jesus suffered, and we ought to be, if it happened to someone close to us or even a stranger, we we would lament them. But this is Christ, the Son of God, Consider, this is what Adam Clark said, consider how heinous sin must be in the sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. Sin is more deadly and costly than we can fathom. Continuing in verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. There were two other convicted criminals who were crucified with Jesus at a place called Calvary. In other scriptures, it's called Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. 
They were stripped of their clothes. They were crucified. Nails were driven through hands and feet. And uh, then Jesus says this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You guys have ever, like last night I was washing dishes and there was a steak knife that was out of place and got me on the hand. And I said, ow. I, I said something to draw attention to the fact that I just cut myself. I just scraped a finger. Jesus is not crying out, ow, trying to draw attention to the, the fact that he has now been pierced by nails and that his weight is being suspended by them and the pain of his back being against the wood. He's not drawing attention to his pains. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's miraculous. It's incredible. Jesus has such love for those who were hurting him, who hated him, who inflicted this excruciating pain. And that word excruciating, it comes out of crucifixion. It's, it's an intense pain that's, that needs a special word to describe how awful it is. No one here has endured such agony, though we've all suffered injuries. I remember when I had knee surgery and the pain meds had worn off and I had, Laura had driven me home. And it's like, it struck me like, I need to somehow get out of this car. And it really hurts to move. And through tears, I managed to get out of the car. And I did pray, but I wasn't praying for anyone else. I was praying for me. I was like, Lord, help me. Uh, my knee is killing me. Like, I was so focused on my own pain, on how pain was affecting me and impacting my ability to move. Jesus, facing so much more pain, unjustly, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I mean, have you ever imagined such a love could exist? Where his thoughts are only for others and their forgiveness, sparing their pain when he's in the midst of pain. Even to breathe was painful, to speak, terrible. And yet he uses his words to say, Father, forgive them, to intercede for the benefit of others. What love? And people are standing there. They're taking in the scene. The soldiers who crucified the, uh, Christ, they divided his clothes. It says they divided his garments into four uh, parts to each soldier. If you turn to John 19, we can read that account. They're dividing his clothes because Jesus wouldn't be needing those clothes anymore. He wasn't going to survive this, and they knew it. And it's significant because it fulfills Scripture. John 19, starting in verse 23, it reads, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. So we can know there were four soldiers because they divided his clothing that had seams and they could divide it, they could tear it apart and say, all right, you have that part, you have this part. They divided among four, but then the tunic was special. It had been woven in one piece. There was no clear-cut seam. And so they said, let's cast lots for it so that we won't ruin it. Because if we tear it, it'll just be rags. And so they cast lots and thus fulfilled scripture. While all this is happening, the Jewish leaders, they are adding insult to injury. 
Those who privately plotted his death, they are publicly uh, scorning him, mocking him, saying he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ. Let him come down from the cross, we'll believe him. Jesus knew if he would save others, he could not save himself. That this was the way of salvation. The way of forgiveness for all sinners is that he would pay this price, that his blood would atone for the sins of the world. He had nothing to prove to skeptics who scorned their Savior, and there was no bolt from heaven striking them down. There were no she-bears coming out of the woods to maul them because he uttered a curse against them. No, they were allowed to shout at him. They were allowed to scorn him. They had no idea Jesus had the power to kill and to make alive, and he freely offered them eternal life. That offer was to them. Paul wrote to believers in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. When rich are accused of crimes, they're able to uh, post bail, to hide it, hire a defense team, to hop on a private jet, and even have uh, plastic surgery to conceal their appearance. Jesus, he doesn't try to disguise himself. He was there out in the open for everyone to see. He laid down his life, and the riches of the kingdom of God and acceptance as children of God is offered by all to him. He's offered it to all. Continuing in Luke 23, verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. The soldiers now are joining in, in insulting Christ, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Over the head of Jesus, Pilate had written this inscription, or in a couple of the accounts it says, the accusation against him, the king of the Jews, in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And if you still have your finger in John 19, uh, verse 20, it says this, Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The critical, those who were critical about Christ, they were critical of what Pilate wrote about him. They said, We don't want you to give any validation that Jesus is the king. But Pilate was pretty fed up with the Jewish rulers by this point. He had caved to their demands and he was going to put his stamp of authority on it. said, No, I've written it. And it was an insult to them because this is what Rome does to the king of the Jews, right? They humiliate him. They crucify him. They, they pin him to a tree. And what Pilate wrote was factual. It was prophetic. Jesus truly is the king of the Jews, whether they liked it or not. The wise men from the east, remember when they came, they said, where is the king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. That is Christ. And now as he's dying, we see over his head again, the king of the Jews. Not he said this, but definitive. He is the king of the Jews. There he is, Jesus Christ, the son of God. He's been identified, uh, you know, the first and the last. And from the beginning of his life to the end, it's clear. He is the king of the Jews. 
the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And indeed we justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In Matthew and Mark, those gospels, both of them say that the, both of the criminals reviled him, that they also were both mocking him at one stage. But as the uh, day wore on, one of the criminals had a change of heart, where he's rebuking the one who's repeating the taunts of the scribes and the soldiers. And he says, how can you mock Jesus when you're under the same condemnation? You too are about to meet your maker. And you're being condemned. You're, this is just that you're being crucified because of your crimes. And it's just that I am being crucified because of my sin. Instead of mocking, shouldn't he have been lamenting the end of his life, considering what he was facing? The gravity of the situation, the stunning revelation that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He is the promised Messiah. It prompted one of these criminals to believe on Christ. The criminal, he admitted freely he deserved to be punished. That uh, Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus wasn't crucified for what he did, but because of who he was. The king of the Jews. The penitent criminal realized he did not deserve saving. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The other guy was saying, save yourself and us. The, the one who believed could not bring himself to even say that. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what faith. Here you have a man being crucified, and this other man believes that he is going to enter into a kingdom and be able to remember him. That he's going to, I mean, we, like the soldiers were saying, their life is over. We're taking their clothes. They won't need them anymore. They're going to be dead and buried. But he's saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, living. And it was a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He speaks to him as a king. And he did more than the sinner dared ask because God accounts faith as righteousness. This word paradise, it means park in Eden. It's like an idyllic place. It's synonymous with heaven, the dwelling place of God. Paul, he used this same word, for paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 4. It says how he was cut up, caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul was caught up into the third heaven, beyond the atmosphere of the earth, beyond the space that contains the heavenly bodies, and into the dwelling place of God. And we always think of heaven as just being up there, uh, like vertical from where we are on the globe, but it's like, it transcends geography. It, it transcends place, space, and time. One day, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, they will all be dissolved. But the paradise of God, heaven, where the new heavens and new earth will be, that's God's dwelling place forever and the place where he's called us to be with him. 
a timeless realm where righteousness dwells. That's God's holy habitation where we get to be with him and he with us. To all who are overcome with sin and guilt, as this criminal was, when we admit our sinfulness deserves punishment, we don't deserve life, we don't deserve forgiveness, and we cry out to Jesus in faith, we will be forgiven, we will be received, even as he was. Luke 23, verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. When the, then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. At the sixth hour, which is noon, the entire, entire earth was covered in darkness for a full three hours. It fits as a consequence that for crucifying the light of the world, the whole world should be plunged into darkness. Could not be the result of any natural phenomena. Um, and there's several reasons why. The Passover, it always coincides with a full moon. And when a moon is full, it's seen at night because it gives full brightness. When the children of Israel on Passover left Egypt, there was a full moon. There was the presence of God that was illuminating the way, but it was a time where night would have been pretty bright because the moon was out and it was easily seen. So it couldn't have been a solar eclipse. And the longest solar eclipses are only six or seven minutes long and localized. This says the whole earth, the whole world was plunged into darkness. Can you imagine the impact this darkness had on the viewers? It's like those who are mocking, they're like, what just happened? It's noon. It's dark. The soldiers who were gloating over who had won the tunic, they were now like going, what's going on? This is odd. And then it wasn't stopping. It continued to be dark for hours. Maybe some people, you know, I, I, I'm sure they didn't have their lamps or lights with them. They found it difficult to go home and check on their families and see what was going on. It was like a solar selah. It was a pause to consider the great sin man had done in rejecting the Messiah and what God was doing to bring man out of darkness and into his marvelous light through the gospel. As the time approached three hours, it says in Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at the sixth hour, it begins to be dark. Now at the ninth hour, Jesus calls out. And he quoted the opening statement of Psalm 22. I encourage you guys to read that passage. Because this was a very well-known song that was speaking of the Messiah. And you can read that, and it's, it's amazing. They talk about the, the lots being cast. He can count all his bones, that uh, none of them were broken and that God has heard him. In Matthew 27, 50, so in the Luke passage, it says he cried out and breathed his last. Well, Matthew 27, 50, it says what Jesus cried out. He says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. This also is a quote from the Psalms. It can be found in Psalm 31, verse 5. 
So I encourage you to read Psalm 31. These are the, the passages Jesus alludes to. He quotes to. He doesn't just hint at them. He quotes them. And it's so neat. Psalm 31.5, it says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So they could continue that statement in their mind and go, He's redeemed? Yes, he's the redeemer. So certainly he is the redeemed. To the Jews who memorize and sang these songs of David, these statements directed them to the word of God. It identified Jesus as the promised Messiah. And when the world grew dark, I don't believe the father turned his face away because he looked upon the sacrifice and he received it as paid in full. And Jesus said, it is finished, it was done. Atonement had been made. The sacrifice fulfilled. The scripture accomplished. God's atonement for sinners was complete. Now Matthew 27, 51, it speaks of the veil of the temple being torn, among other things. So Matthew 27, 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew relates that the veil, the paroquet, it was torn top to bottom. Now, in the temple, the holy place where only the priest could go, there was like the holy of holies, the, the holy place where God's presence dwelt. So you'd go into the temple and there would be the uh, menorah that would be lit, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and then a large curtain. And this curtain, it was, I, I don't know the exact height of it, but it was very tall. It was, um, I'm not going to even guess, but... Um, quite tall. And it was torn top to bottom. So it wasn't bottom to top. It was like from God to man that this place where God's presence dwelt was now being opened up through the veil of Christ's flesh. Jesus' flesh was torn so that there was now a way. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And now there's a way to God, the presence of God, that we can dwell with him and that he can fill us and dwell with us forever. It was God's doing. And now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in him. What a picture. When the centurion who had overseen the crucifixion, he had stood and watched in darkness for hours. He witnessed Jesus crying out at a time where most people could only muster a, whis a whimper. He cried out with a loud voice, said, it is finished. His conclusion was certainly this was a righteous man. Change of heart in the criminal. Now the Gentile soldier, he affirms, Jesus was a righteous man because of what he had seen and heard. Verse 47 in Luke, it says, He glorified God. By affirming Jesus is righteous, that he is the Christ, God is glorified because he is God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Final verses in Luke 23, 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It's like we are numbered among them, watching what has happened. After three hours, he had breathed his last. 
As Jesus said previously in John 10, 17 and 18, no one takes away my life. I have the power to lay it down because I have the power to raise it up again. Many of the onlookers, it was like, okay, it's over. And they lamented him and they walked away. But the followers of Jesus, those acquainted with him, it says they stood at a distance. They watched the shocking events unfold. These were the people who only days before had celebrated him with praise and hosannas coming into the city of Jerusalem with the palm branches and putting their clothes before him, celebrating him as the king of the Jews. But And they had just had the Passover, where they had eaten the Passover meal and remembered and celebrated what God had done in delivering them from Egypt. And now Jesus had been arrested and betrayed and killed. And it was over. Their hope of a kingdom on earth was shattered. They couldn't understand, they couldn't reconcile how he could die. How is this possible? We have the privilege of drawing near to Christ now, today. We're standing afar off. We're separated by thousands of kilometers and thousands of years. But we know Jesus is alive. So we can draw near to him in faith because he provided himself an offering for sinners. I'm really taken by the contrast between the soldiers who cast lots for the tunic because they recognized the value of it remaining intact. They said, let's not tear that tunic. It's just this thin fabric that had been woven, but it was valuable how it was. They say, if we rip it, it's ruined. Isn't it ironic? People who recognize value in a piece of fabric did not value the Son of God, and they tore his flesh. He was ripped open for our sins. And God allowed the body of Jesus to be broken, his blood to be shed, so that sinners doomed to death could receive forgiveness and salvation by faith in him. And to show all that God had accomplished, he tore the, that veil in the temple from top to bottom to show we, man has access, not just priests, but all people have access to God through faith in Jesus because he is our high priest. So we come to him now. And his, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's like God opened up a way for man to draw near to God and for God to dwell in men and that mankind can live with him forever in heaven. Could you please turn to Hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 19. And here we have a good passage of application. the writer of Hebrews uh, goes into great detail about this very thing. This wasn't my idea. This is just from the Bible. This isn't someone trying to be clever. This is God's wisdom and his ways are past finding out that he would open a way to know him, to be saved. Hebrews 10 verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's so awesome that God's made a new and living way for us to draw near to God through faith in Jesus. He's washed us. He's forgiven us. And remembering the faithfulness of God, it stirs us up. It compels us to encourage one another, to serve one another, and to draw near to our King and High Priest, Jesus Christ, in faith, to seek Him. And you don't have to book trip to Israel because there's no temple there. You can draw near to Jesus right now through faith, wherever you are, because He lives and he reaches out to us all. And all sinners, we're really in two camps today. We're either the dying criminal who blasphemed Christ, or we're the dying criminal who realized his sin, the just punishment of death he deserved, and that Jesus is the Lord in whom is our only hope of forgiveness and salvation. The carol says concerning the birth of Jesus, come and behold him. Well, it's fitting concerning his death and well. Will you behold him? Will you look at him today? Not at the things going on in the world. Not even your own pains. Look to Jesus. Draw near to him. Will we mourn the fact that he died or mourn our sin that required his suffering? The veil of the temple has not been torn so that we can see its ripped fragments or go into the holy place as a tourist attraction, and it's like, oh, this was where God dwelt. No, he has come to dwell within you, to fill you and empower you, to be an encourager, to serve him, to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, which is our our reasonable offering before the Lord. Praise God, there's no more offering to make for sin because Jesus has paid it. He has provided all the atonement. Let's celebrate our Savior now and always. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. And Lord, we remember that tragic scene unfolding that's just unspeakable in a sense. But you have consecrated a way through it for us to know you and for you to dwell with us forever. And Lord, we look to you now in a world where it's certain that there will be trials and tribulations and where, where there will be wicked uh, schemes of the enemy. Thank you, Lord, that you are supreme. You are sovereign and good. That your goodness was not just in Israel, but across the heavens and the earth for all time. And thank you that you have given us uh, a Savior in Christ, that you met our need for forgiveness and acceptance and that we can be encouragers to one another. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to meet. Thank you for allowing us to to fulfill those one another commands as we gather together. And I pray that we would be those, Lord, who offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you, mourning our sin, that we might turn from it, not just feeling sorry for ourselves or sorry for you, but repenting and rejoicing in the atonement in walking in newness of life, in trusting you in the power of God and the gospel to transform lives and to make sinners saints 
And thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and you will accomplish the work that you've begun. And I pray, Lord, this message of salvation would go to the ends of the earth, that you would use it to bring light in the darkness, that you bring life where there's only death, that you would break the bonds, the shackles of sin that hold us and the blinders that keep us from seeing you and your work and your goodness in the word and the world. I pray, Lord, we would be your faithful ambassadors, your servants that minister unto you and bless and glorify your holy name with thanksgiving now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.